Have you noticed as a Christian that um, before you go and you do something foolish and sinful, God almost always gives you kind of a series of warnings first? You notice that? Uh, Sometimes he'll send somebody into your life and that person will just have a special message for you and it won't be somebody you necessarily want to hear from. Uh, But... They will have a message, or maybe you won't recognize it then. You'll go on and kind of stumble into your folly, and then after that, you will say, God, why did you let that happen to me? And then he will gently say, don't you remember when I sent so-and-so to warn you? Or, and you're like, you're right. You're right. That's the way it is. And scriptures say, they tell us not to despise prophesying, because that's what we tend to do if somebody comes into our life with a with a word for us, especially if it's a correction or if it's a rebuke or if it exposes our sin, we have a tendency to be kind of, oh, I don't want to hear that, you know. And that's not good. Wise people, wise people listen to correction. Look at what it says there in Proverbs 15, 31, 32. And I could have shown you dozens of passages throughout the Bible that say just this very same thing. The ear that hears the rebuke of Life will abide among the wise. He who disdains instruction despises his own soul. He who heeds rebuke gets understanding. This is one, one Bible verse. The Proverbs are full of this. The Bible is full of this. If you listen, listen. The, the literary structure of the prophecy of Micah is based on this threefold repetition of listen to me now. And then it's three oracles of God, where, you know, oracle meaning not a pastor's God inspired embellishment or teaching of, but this is like, I'm telling you the words God told me to tell you. Listen to me, I'm telling you what God said is what Micah is literally giving three oracles of God. And the three of them are going to toggle back and forth between judgment and restoration, or judge, kind of like justice and mercy. Justice and mercy, justice and mercy does it three times in, in Micah. I, I look back at my own life and I remember people, I'll give them little names. I, I won't go into a lot of detail because, well, you just don't need to know that much about me. But I, I remember people God sent into my life. For instance, I remember the guy I call Balaam's ass. I kind of like calling him that because, well, you know. <laughs> I knew you were going to react. It's in the Bible there. So I call him Balaam's ass because when he would come and talk to me, I would think about this guy and I would think, you know, you're such a donkey. You know, you, you really are. He didn't have a lot of stuff to commend himself. He didn't have a lot of, you know, he, his life wasn't really what it ought to have been. But he pulled me aside, Balaam's ass, and he tells me something. And I'm like, I'm looking at him thinking, <laughs> do you remember this, Lois? Oh, yeah, you do, you know. I, Joe, uh, I, yeah. I was going to tell you a name that would, so we could be buddies. I'll talk to you about it later. You'll remember this. I mean, it was un, under a tree after church. This guy comes up to me. He drops into church every once in a while. I mean, he wasn't like a pillar of the church. He wasn't like a godly guy with a worn out Schofield Bible. He was just Balaam's ass, you know. And he, he, comes up, he comes up to me and he tells me something. He gives me this warning. And I'm thinking, dude, you are a fruitcake. You know what I mean? Just while he's talking, in my mind, I'm thinking, you're a fruitcake, you know. And then he says something else, and I think, you're really a fruitcake. And then as he walks away, I think to myself, hmm, I wonder if I just heard from Balaam's ass. 
I wonder if God just took a donkey and spoke to me. Well, if you scroll the years forward, he absolutely did. He used this knucklehead, who I kind of thought was sort of a fruitcake. He used this guy to give me a kind of a dual warning in my life. It's very interesting. Now, don't get all excited and come to me after church and assume that you've gotten some prophetic uh, gift. I don't want to hear it right now, okay? Um, I guess I do want to hear it because that's what I'm preaching about. So if you really believe that God wants you to speak to me, please just give me time because my initial reaction will not be good because I need time to process rebukes and corrections, and and I need them, but, you know, I need them time to to process them. And then there was a guy, uh, I'm going to call him Jessup the Angel, and then forget this guy, this long-haired guy. He comes into church, he's in like a rock band, um, Christian rock band. He's got long hair and um, long, like, long like my wife. And, um, and I preach, and he comes up to me afterward, and he just has this word for me. He's like, tells me this. And he walks away, and I thought, if I ever heard... Uh, of the voice of an angel, <laughs> what I needed to hear, what an encouraging word, hopeful word, Jessup the angel gave it to me that day. Interesting. That kind of, you're thinking about that one, aren't you? I just felt like looking back, realizing what I was going through, you know, that was a word that God encouraged him to give to me. I believe it was. I'm not talking about a word like this word, like Micah's word, oracle of God. I'm talking about an encouragement of truth. There, there was another guy, Reuben uh, Mayer was his name. Um, and, and he a white-haired old guy in the church. And he stopped by my office one day very discreetly, and he asked me a question. Kind of asked, can I help you with this? And, you know, and I'm like, oh, no, I'm okay. Never forget this. I'm okay. Reuben double-checks with me. Pastor, are you sure you're young? I'm like t- 26 or 7. No, I was 20. Three, four. Pastor, are you, you sure I can't help you with this? It's, it's, I'm really good at this. And I'm like, I'm okay. I'm a young fool, you know, and I'm like, I'm okay. And he goes away. And, and not listening to that guy's counsel cost me, oh, my goodness. Cost me. I mean, like, cost me. And I go, I go away for years, and I come back to do a wedding in the church of a girl that was in my youth group. And I'm greeting people as they leave, and here comes white-haired Reuben Mayer, and he shakes my hand. It was like electric shock when he took my hand. I thought, God sent that man, and if I would have listened to him, it would have saved me a lot of trouble. And so sometimes people are going to come in, and they're going to have a word of rebuke, or sometimes a word of encouragement, or sometimes just a word of instruction because they're wise. And if you're wise, you will process those things. They say, you know, take them to the Scripture and then do as the Spirit tells you to to do because this is pleasing to the Lord. And this is what Micah is doing. Micah isn't on his own mission. He's not Balaam's ass. He's he's not, you know, Jessup the angel. He is on another level. He is a prophet of God, and he has a burden from God, and he has an oracle, three oracles from God. He's told by God what he's supposed to say and who he's supposed to say it to, and and what he says is very specific, and it is going to happen, and it does happen. And by the way, some of the stuff that Micah said hasn't happened yet, but everything that Micah said was going to happen 
in the past already has happened. The things that Mike has said are going to happen in the future, they're going to happen just as sure as the things that he said were going to happen in the past happened in the past because it's the word from God. Mike, his name is, is Pastor uh, Pine said, it, it means who is like Yahweh? Who is like the Lord? And it's a little bit of a, shadow, a foreshadowing, a literary foreshadowing for his name to show up early. And there's a whole bunch of this, they tell me. I'm not a scholar, obviously, of Hebrew here. Very few people have this kind of depth of scholarship of Hebrew, but I can read about people who are. And it's interesting because there's all, there are all kinds of um, literary features in the book of, of Micah like this. For instance, in chapter 2, there's going to be a long list of cities and Peter, you want to jump all over this because this is your kind of thing. This is your baby right here. And all these cities, uh, when Micah calls them out by name, he uses the name of the city in a poetic way, in a pun, in order to kind of shock him. It would be like saying, Detroit, your cars are going to stop running. You know? Or like to, if you're talking about uh, Cincinnati's the queen city, he might say, Cincinnati, you're going to lose your throne. And every city was like that. He used a pun. There's a bunch of that. But what I think is interesting is a foreshadowing here. His name is, Who is Like the Lord? He gets to the end of the book, and he's going to highlight a quality of God. And he's going to say it again, Who is Like the Lord? It's a double meaning, I think, in this, Who is Like the Lord? In one sense, it's like, there's no God like this God. And the scriptures often say there's no God that even has the audacity to make the claims that our God can unblinkingly make. There is no God like our God who is like the Lord. In other words, who can rival him. But there's another piece that's very clear here because he's going through Micah, is exposing leaders. He's like, can I find a man anywhere who's like the Lord? Is there anybody who's like the Lord? Who is like the Lord? Kind of a double meaning. He's a small-town prophet, and don't you kind of enjoy that? Because if this was a movie, and I think if we think in terms of literary, maybe a lot of us think of in terms of, of movies, this would be a very interesting movie because what you have is you have this small-town prophet guy. You see there Micah chapter 1 and verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth, which is a little tiny town 25 miles west, southwest of Jerusalem. So he's a guy from the sticks, if you will. Unlike Amos, he is a prophet, but but Amos was made a prophet. You remember Amos going, I'm not the prophet or the son of the prophet, but he was a prophet. And and Mike is, but he comes from small town roots, but he goes and he has a message for the king and the capital. He talks to, he has a message from God for the leaders, and he has a message from God for for the nations. And it's not just a little message. It's like this is going to happen to you and this life and death stuff is going to happen to you. So again, if you don't mind me jumping into a bit of application, you know, right now, don't disregard, you know, obviously the direct application would be the Bible itself. You you see what I'm saying? In other words, a prophet in, in this sense, the Old Testament prophet is speaking the word of God. The corollary today would not be some guy that comes up to you and has a word of advice or encouragement from you. It would be, this book, the Bible, and, and there would be an application for a person who might have a word for you. But you understand what I'm saying is that person may be educated or it may not be educated. That person may be brilliant or not brilliant. That person may come up with you, they may say the wrong thing, but they have a spiritual intuition. I mean, I'm just speaking from experience here. 
If, if you walk with sensitivity to the Lord, I think in your heart of hearts, uh, and especially we have a handful of young people around, most of the young people are gone tonight, but I would say to you young people, um, as the book of Proverbs always says, listen, my son, listen, my son, listen. All of us should listen. And this is what Micah is saying. Micah, um, was, it was Micah who in Jeremiah convinces the king not to put uh, Jeremiah to death. Uh, Micah, they say, and, and I think it's true, is like Isaiah in miniature. Everything you have in Isaiah, you have in Micah in miniature, including the idea of the restoration of a remnant which is a big theme in Isaiah and in, in, in Micah. The book has three major divisions. I implied this earlier. I actually stated it earlier. Chapters 1 and 2, 3 through 5, and 6 and 7. And the reason you know them, there's this little literary flag. It, it, each one of these sections is introduced by the phrase, hear or listen. See it in chapter 1, verse 2? Hear all you peoples. Listen, O earth. And all this in it. Then you have this first oracle. And in chapter 3, notice it says in verse 1, Hear now, O heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. You have this, the, the formula repeated, but you have another audience. Okay? And then you have in chapter 6, it, it does it again. See chapter 6? Hear now what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. And you have there, it's kind of an interesting literary thing. It's a, it's a legal case where God is calling Israel to court. And he calls on the mountains as witness. And that's the literary device that he uses. Um, the bookend then has three, three major uh, divisions. And, my, and they're alternating pronouncements of doom and expressions of hope. Some that have taught on this have said woe and wheel. You know, woe, the funeral word wheel is the old English word for, for happy. You almost kind of think of dance, you know. And you have that. It's threefold repetition of that, real clearly. I'll show you just a minute again in a slide. But that's the, the arrangement of the structure of the book. And if you think about that being the structure of the book, and you want to really kind of get the truth of the book in your heart and apply it properly, just think about, obviously, if God is saying three things, two things three times, it's not hard to figure out what he wants us to get from this. He's going to say two things three times. So it's like he, we should be able to get this. What's interesting, before I go on, though, is Micah is going to reproach unjust leaders. He's going to defend the rights of the poor and against the rich and powerful. And he's going to preach justice, social justice, while looking forward to a world of peace called Zion under the leadership of a new Davidic monarch, which are obviously, you, you know, we dispensationalists know, this is pointing toward a future reign of Jesus on the throne of David in a literal and physical sense. It represents the, the... But the term Zion is used... Interesting, Bob, you sang a beautiful song about Zion today. And, and um, thank you for that. And the, the word Zion in the Bible is a really, really interesting word. Because it, what it can mean is just... It's another... It can mean... It actually was originally a, a town associated with Jerusalem kind of near proximity, maybe what would Detroit and the closest city that's now a part of Detroit be? I don't know. It'd be like 
Trenton and Brownstown or whatever. That's probably a bad example. Zion and Jerusalem. But then Zion becomes known as another name for Jerusalem and a national name. But future, in the future, Zion is a very, very special and technical term that kind of evokes the idea of the whole future promises of the reign of God in his people that is actually centered on the mountain where Jerusalem is. And it's literal and it's physical and we call that Zion. Sing it with me. Our marching to Zion. Beautiful, beautiful Zion. That's the idea. There's something, I don't mean really saying it, we may do that later, but this is the idea of Zion. In, in, in this small book of seven chapters, the repetition of Zion nine times. So that should be something that makes us break into song when we think about that. There's a future Zion, and by the grace of God, and only by the grace of God, you and I will be a part of that. Zion, where Jesus sits enthroned in Jerusalem, and the new heaven and new earth join together. And we have unlimited time to worship our Savior. And we no longer are plagued by our own brokenness and sin and regret and all that. That's going to be awesome. You can write songs about that. Hey, let's keep going here. So here's a basic structure that I've talked about. I'll show it to you. you have the, again, oracles of judgment and oracles of restoration. It's kind of like one oracle, if you will. Three different, you'll see it again here. Uh, chapter 3, oracles of judgment. And chapter 4 through chapter 15, verse 5, oracles of restoration. And then again, chapter 6 through 7, oracles of judgment. And again, oracles of restoration. In other words, God says, here's what you've done. And this is why I'm going to judge you for what you've done. And I'm perfectly righteous. And I'm perfectly just. And I'm perfectly holy. But I desire to restore you. And then he's going to say it again in, to a different set of leaders, if you will. And you have in this section, you have the first section, he rebukes Samaria and Jerusalem. Sort of symbolically going out to the capitals to rebuke the nations and telling them what they did wrong. In the second section, he's rebuking the leaders of Israel and of Judah. And then in the third section, he is a prophet to Judah, but he gets word to Israel as well. And, and God rebukes, uh, in the third section, God uses Micah to rebuke the people of Israel and the people of Judah, not just the leaders, but the people. See that? So you have that, that kind of basic structure right there. Now, what I want to do pastorally is, is tonight is weave together like our looking at the book and are applying it like at the same time. Sometimes we would do it differently. We would say, okay, let's look at the book and make observations, and then we'll make some applications. But uh, and I think it's just better tonight for us just to look at it and do it all at once. So we're going to apply this immediately as we understand it. And, and really what I'm trying to do is just trying to help you, you know, from preaching and teaching point of view, is just to look at this wonderful book of the Bible and I like to stir up your heart for, to come back to it over and over again and memorize parts of it and delight in parts of it. So I'm just kind of showing you the wonderful highlights and getting a central truth here. So I hope I can do that. And these three things. Now first, God wants wrongs to be rebuked. God wants wrong. I'm a little surprised that a handful of you didn't say amen because I know some of you are like, that's right, you know. So anyway, I, that's, that's true. He wants wrongs to be rebuked. And we live in a time when it's not done very much. You know, it's a lot of like, let's just say nice stuff. Let's not say anything mean. Um, there are... Um, there are two basic seasons in the future. As we go into this, I want to tell you, mention something first. There are two basic seasons in the future that Micah is going to point forward to, and this is in general. 
And this is true in general in prophetic literature, in the minor prophets and the major prophets, well, the big prophets and the, little, the, the big books and the little books of prophecy in the Bible. And that is this, you know, there's, there's an immediate application, immediate fulfillment of many things that's going to happen soon in space and time, within the lifetime of the person giving the prophecy. And this is true with Micah. Israel goes into Syrian captivity. Judah, though, is going to go into Babylonian captivity. It's going to really happen right then and there or within a few years. But then some of these prophecies, you read them, and they're not referring to initial, you know, are primarily something that's going to happen. They're, they're referring to something that's going to happen in the future. A great example of that is, well, who, somebody tell me, in Micah 5, there's something really awesome in Micah 5 too. What is it? Say it out loud. Yeah, Bethlehem. Bethlehem, right? The place of Jesus' birth is given. So we know this is like, oh, this should make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. We know this isn't just talking about something long ago and far away, but it's not obviously talking about something long ago and far away, but it's also talking about something that really is going to happen hundreds of years later in space and time. Here's where it gets really exciting. So there's this season that Micah refers to, and the prophets do this, that's going to happen, and usually it's like, oh, I see that in the first advent of Christ, in the birth of Christ, and the the, the physical ministry of Christ on earth in his first advent. But then there are also passages that are just really beautiful that haven't happened yet. Now, if the things that Micah said were going to happen in his lifetime happened in his lifetime, and the things that Micah said were going to happen when Jesus came happened when Jesus came, guess what? When Jesus comes back again, the things that are still yet to be fulfilled are going to be fulfilled, and there are some of those here in Micah, and they're just really beautiful passages. i got to quit talking about them so I can actually read them to you. But Micah seeks in vain for a worthy man whose message is, who is like the Lord? And he often says this. Wednesday night, got home from prayer meeting, uh, watched the news. Well, how depressing was that? Hope you remember that? We are just watching the news, and they were, it was the local news in Detroit. I think you tweeted about it, didn't you? Yeah. It was the local news in Detroit, and it was one corrupt knucklehead after another. It's like the entire news broadcast was corrupt mayors and corrupt public servants and guys that were selling their influence. And one after another, you just want to go, who is like the Lord? Can I find a man who doesn't rip people off? Can I find a woman who's honest and, and straightforward? Can we get somebody who's honest here? And you feel this with Mike. He's saying, who is like the Lord? Who can we count on to be honest and right and just and so forth? And these wrongs need to be rebuked, and God says it. And so here we have God wants these wrongs rebuked, and he gives these oracles of judgment, especially among his people and especially among his leaders. He wants holiness established, and he wants holiness enforced. Don't you think that's kind of hard for a pastor to say something like that? And I typed this out. I was like, ooh, I'm typing the truth here, but I'm but it's making me tremble, you know? So you're a leader. God demands holiness of you. And his people, who are, you know, privy to his, the riches of his word, he demands of us holiness, and he wants wrongs rebuked. Now, I can give you a bunch of examples, but let's jump into this and look at Micah 1. And, and I'll give you, you know, four examples. You've got to write the passages down because I didn't put them on the slides because, well, we were Sunday night and you guys are the green beret and I know you didn't need that. Chapter 1, verse one through, uh, 2 through 7. Hear all you peoples, listen, O earth, and all that is in it. Let the Lord be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. 
For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place, and he will come down and tread on the high places of the earth, and the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. You see, that's a waterfall. It's like, this is really interesting uh, poetry, uh, this literary uh, description of God. He's... The mountains of the earth are like little stepping places for him. And he's going to, when he comes, the mountains will melt, the valleys will split like wax before fire, waters will pour it out of a steep place. All this for the transgression of Jacob, for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? Therefore I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the field, places for planting a vineyard. I'll pour down her stones into the valley, and I'll uncover her foundations. All her carved images will be beaten into pieces. And all her pay as a harlot will be burned with fire. And all her idols will I will lay desolate. For she gathered it from the pay of a harlot, and they shall return to the pay of a harlot. Pretty straight talk, right? What is this? This is God wants wrongs rebuked directly. And he's giving Micah the words. He's giving it to say, go tell them this. That's what they need to hear. Uh, Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 are another example. Woe to those who devise iniquity and work out evil in their beds. At morning light they practice it because it's the power of their hand. And they covet fields and they take them by violence. You get this? You're laying in bed at night and you're dreaming up stuff to rip off. You're dreaming up, I'll get that land. And I, you're, you're, at bed at night is where you're supposed to be worshiping God. At bed at night is where you're supposed to be having your evening prayers, where you confess your sin and you tell God you love him and you ask him for strength for that. And in bed at night, they're going, I know how I can milk some more money out of some poor people and get what I want. He said, you, woe to you. It's like funeral terminology. You're in trouble. He rebukes them. Um, Chapter 3, verses 6 and 7 would be another example, and there are bunches of these examples. Therefore, you shall have night without vision, darkness without divination, and the sun will go down on the prophets, and the day will be dark in them, and the seers will be ashamed, diviners abashed. Indeed, they shall all cover their lips. There is no answer from God. It's like, your your lights are going out, and you didn't listen, so I'm not going to tell you anymore. "Ah." Chapter 5, verses 10 through 13. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, I will cut off your horses from your midst and destroy your chariots. I will cut off the cities of your land, throw down your strongholds and cut off sorceries from your hand. You will have no soothsayers. Your carved images I will cut off, etc. He's just, he's, he's saying God wants wrongs rebuked and this is, we can take as direct application to us. Rebuke your own wrongs first so God doesn't have to send you any Balaam's asses or prophets, right? Just look at your own life and quickly see it the way God sees it and keep your heart broken and tender before the Lord. And that way you don't have to have any of this judgment that that comes in. Um, God wants wrongs to be rebuked. There's a general truth and it's true there. I had a had a meeting with a young guy, and a guy says to me, he's a bright kid. He's been around the church for a long time. Not our church, but been around the church for a long time and a good kid. And it was kind of interesting because as he was talking, he just kind of like revealed a, a fallacy. You could just like, ooh, when he said it, I'm like, ooh, you know, you, you got to, you slipped a cog in your theology right there. When he said it, I'm like, wow. So we had a good talk and I got a chance to talk to him about it. But his, his idea was that he says, the way I look at it, kind of like this, in the Old Testament, God is trying to f- kind of coerce people into keeping his law. And so he threatens them a lot. 
That's what the God of the Old Testament just kind of threatens people a lot with judgment because he's really trying to coerce them into keeping his law. But it doesn't work. So then, in the New Testament, he has the approach where he gently appeals to them. And I kind of laughed in my heart as he was saying that, but good cop, bad cop, God, you know? Is God good cop, bad cop? It's like bad cop in the Old Testament, I'm going to beat you with a hose. Oh, it doesn't work, okay. Well, I'll send in the good cop, and Jesus is the good, you know, is that it? In the New Testament, Jesus comes in, and he's kind of lighthearted, and okay, you know, you've been worked over by God in the Old Testament, but now I'm the easier God, so I'm going to, you know, that, we do think that. You know, we've all got to work our theology of how we make the Old and New Testaments, how, we, how they fit together. And, and again, this is the same thing over and over again as you approach these prophecies. You say all through the flyovers of the Old Testament, and it would be, I, you know, I hope I can be adequately describe this to you in a, in a better way or get your thinking going in the right way as you read your Old Testament. It should be more like this. There is one God who is immutable. He never changes. He is absolutely holy, absolutely holy, and demands absolute holiness and absolute perfection from people. In the Old Testament, he's setting the table for that and creating a thirst for absolute holiness. And so in the Old Testament, you see that. You have the sacrificial system and all of that. And he's creating a thirst for the Redeemer who will come and provide the answer for that demand of God for absolute holiness. And the God of the Old Testament is, is absolute in his mercy, in, in his desire to love and his loving kindness. That's the way he is, the Old Testament God and New Testament. And Jesus of the New Testament is the one coming and he's breathing out violence in the re- at the end of the Bible. Jesus is the one coming back and he looks angry. His wrath is the word. It's Jesus in the New Testament. So God is God, Old Testament and New. It's not good cop, bad cop. It's not bad cop, good cop. No. It's God who's progressively revealing himself. And the first thing he does over and over again just says, I am absolutely holy and I demand absolute holiness and righteousness and justice and none of you have fulfilled it. What are you going to do? And we're like, whoa, it's me. And he goes, I'm going to give you a few little hints here. And then, but eventually the full revelation in the light, the blazing light of the revelation of Jesus Christ and he comes and dies to pay for our sin on Calvary. That then is a better way of looking at the congruity between the Old and the New Testament. It's not totally adequate, but it's a beginning, right? God is establishing his absolute demand for perfect holiness throughout the Old Testament and he's creating an appetite, a thirst for redemption. He's lacing kind of into the human's you know, mind and heart, and the collective heart, a, a receptivity to Jesus. And then somebody comes along one day and goes, behold the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And then people that are enlightened go, ah, the lamb, the lamb, the lamb. Not a lamb, the lamb. And all of a sudden now we're breaking into song and it's, it's beautiful. So there you have it. First point of three. God wants right wrong. Second, he wants what is his to be restored. This would be his people. It would be his world too. He wants everything that's his restored. He will have. Now, you know, he's not just capricious. He's not just like, I'm mad. I didn't get my way, so I'm going to have it back. No, think of this. Is not, this is not the God, you know, of the toy box that's like irritated with somebody. He's not sinful. He has throne rights throughout the entire universe. He's the very God of very God. He made everything. Everything is owed to him. The world isn't right unless the whole world bows before him. He has every right to demand and expect absolute fealty, loyalty, love, and honor from the entire world. That's who he is. 
He will demand that and he will have that. And some will just stay before God because they reject him and they will suffer forever because they rejected him and he will be honored in their lives. And others, the objects, the vessels of his mercy who came and bowed before him and, and drank of the sweet drink of his mercy in the blood of the Jesus Christ. And we said, yes, I want to receive that mercy. We, our lives will bring him glory and honor because we'll be objects of his mercy. Either way, he gets the honor. That's the way it should be. That's the way it is. And so he wants what's his to be restored. And, and you see this in all the little sections that talk about restoration. It's like he can't talk about judgment without a refrain of mercy. Isn't that wonderful about him? The judgment is very stark. It's very, very strong. And it's, it's not measured. But then the mercy comes flowing like the chorus. You want this judgment, but I would offer you this mercy and this restoration. I would take a remnant of you, and I'll create a nation, and I will come and I will rule, and I'll bring heaven down on the earth, and you'll be a part of that. Which do you want? Judgment or mercy? This is it. Do you want judgment or mercy? You say, Pastor, I think I've heard this before. (laughs) I hope so. I hope that's what you hear every time your Sunday school teacher opens her Bible. And every time you sing or talk about it, it's the same thing. It's the absolute justice and righteousness and holiness of God and his provision for mercy through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, his redemptive program to restore his loved ones to himself and to restore this earth to, to himself. And so your, your neighbor or that person out there that's so messed up and so not restored right now, they could be a treasured one of God that one day his glory will just burst out of their life because he cherished them and made them an object of his mercy and they were saved. And we're in the business of going you know, down in, into the dark places and mining out jewels for the crown of Jesus Christ. That beautiful thought. Not original with me, I was like hearing that. So God wants what's his to be restored. You see this in chapter, you see this all over chapter four and verse eight. It says, you tower of the flock. And that's a uh, evocative little phrase that, um, tower of the flock. Talk about it some other time around Christmas time. Interesting thing to talk about that often shepherds would have a tower. They would watch over their flock, watch over their flocks by night from a tower. Interesting enough, there's a tower like this not far from Bethlehem. But anyway, we'll talk about that later. Here we have an example. The tower of the flock, stronghold of the daughter of Zion. To you shall it come, even the former dominion shall come in the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. It's like you've got royalty in your veins and there's going to be a dominion that's going to be restored. And we all want to know that this is the God who will, who will and how will that happen? Look in, in chapter 5, in verse 2, you see that, he's gonna, that, he, that he foreshadows there's going to be a king who comes and this king is going to be born in a little village. And the little village is called Bethlehem. Who is this king that will be born, that will bring dominion back to God's people? On the earth, who is that man who will be born? But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you will come forth to me one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Oh, that's just amazing. He's talking about the eternal nature of Christ woven into this um, prophetic thing. We know the New Testament says this is talking about Jesus and where he would be born. So this is like, this is pretty cool stuff. We know that Micah here is not just talking about the things that are right happening then, but he's also talking about Jesus and the, and the ultimate kingdom, the ruler who never had a beginning and who will never have an end. This is real. This Jesus isn't somebody we talk about in the past tense. He's here now. 
with us. Whew, that's awesome, isn't it? And so God wants what's his restored, and he will have it restored. So there's a restoration, there's a redemption, there's a regeneration. Remember when Peter says, in the regeneration, love that little phrase there, it's in Luke. In the regeneration, maybe verse 20, chapter 24, in the regeneration, that's, that's provocative because what it means is there's going to be a time, remember my VW illustration? Where you got the, this was, I made it up, it didn't really happen, right? But you got the old VW, but then there was the restore, there was the new v, the VW restore, and then it was like better than the original. Like instead of an 8-track player, it had the MP3 player, and instead of like no heater, like VWs don't have heaters, it actually had an aftermarket heater. It's like, this is a little picture, a very weak picture, but a picture of what, you know, you and I are going to be, and our earth that we're in, God's ultimate plan is to restore better than new in the regeneration, in the eternal state. Micah points forward to this. Let me go to this, and I want to show you that. So he wants uh, wrongs rebuked, and he wants what's his to be restored, and he wants his character revealed. And this is all one central truth. These three things kind of weave into one central truth. Get it this, this way. We need to see the absolute holiness of God, his absolute demands of his just character. And this was like hanging over a head like a sword unless something happens. And we need to see the wonderful mercy of God through Christ. We know this because we have the whole Bible, right? The mercy of God. And, and then we need to make that known. Both his justice and his mercy. That's it. Make known the justice of God and make known the mercy of God. Reveal that. That's our job and God is honored in that, and our hearts are like tugged upward. It's like this is the way holiness works. As, as I look at who God is, and I love who God is, not just my brain, but my brain and my deepest heart and my deepest affections, over and over again I sing about who he is and prepare myself to come to worship. And when I come, I realize today it's important for my own holiness and the holiness of people that I love and the people that I gather with. It's important that I enter into worship with genuineness in the corporate worship and in my private worship, that I really worship, that my inner heart really adores God because that in that is when, by a miracle of the Holy Spirit, I am made like whoever it is that I'm adoring, this, this God who I'm adoring, and even as by the Spirit of the Lord, 2 Corinthians three eighteen. That's uh, also in Romans chapter 8. This is like, the spe- like we, we exercise effort, like Paul Gardner was talking about last Sunday night. We exercise effort toward holiness. We, we Like a gymnasium, you know, we discipline ourselves unto godliness. But know that none of us will achieve any godliness in sanctification unless the Holy Spirit does that transforming work in us. He's the one that gives us the inclination to do it, and he's the one that supercharges what it is that we're doing so that we become like him. But here's what it looks like in practicality. You just look at what God is like. I know I'm kind of going over. i got to wrap it up here. But you, you, you look at what God is like with admiration, whether that's in song or reading or just looking at creation, or you have this epiphany in your soul where you just like sit down to a good meal, and you're just like, God, how good you are to me that you feed my family over and over again. I love you. I'm grateful for that. My boy came home from college to be here with the weekend. What makes me so happy about that? You're so good to us, God. You give us these things. If a congregation of preachers, I could go on and on. All these things that tug our hearts up Godward, and we say, God, you, this is who you are, God. You're perfectly holy and righteous, and, and I don't deserve to even live, but you sent your son Jesus to die for me, and you sent your spirit to live in me, and you put me in your church. And so 
I praise you. And then in that inner love and affection that I have for God, then I'm drawn to, I, I become more and more, you become more and more like him. And this is also what draws other people. Uh, he uses that to draw other people to him as we so want to influence other people and be missionaries to influence other people. So you have these three things. I'll show you this real quick. Um, it is ultimate supremacy. And this is the part I, I got to read to you. Look in Hebrew. In, why did I say Hebrews? My brain is mush. Um, Micah is what we're studying tonight. Chapter 4, listen to this. Because this, this is not a first advent. This isn't the season that Micah is pointing toward in the first advent of Christ. He's pointing toward the, beyond the second advent of Christ. So, in other words, I believe what I'm going to read now is going to happen in the future still. All right? And it's pretty cool. It shall come to pass in the latter days... That the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hill. I believe that's in Revelation where the new Jerusalem comes down of heaven and seats or hovers over the earth and seats itself on top of the earth. That's what it's talking about. She shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills. And listen to this phrase. This is, oh, sweet. Get a picture of this like a movie in your mind. And the people shall flow to it. You see that? People just go, they're going up to Jerusalem. What's going to happen when we get there? Many nations will come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations so far off. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. It's the millennial reign and the kingdom in its fullest sense and the eternal state that's referring to here, I believe. Isn't that pretty cool? gonna really happen just like the stuff that micah said was gonna happen happen and the stuff that micah said would happen where jesus would be born happen and there's gonna become a time when the entire nation the entire world lays down their arms you know and god and the, the new jerusalem comes down to heaven sets itself on a new created earth and the nations flock they flood it's like the great huge monster amazing bible conference in jerusalem we're all going up and can you hear the thunderous song? Is that God's people, the redeemed people, are singing? And we're, we're not, we're not uh, worrying about the things that we worried about before. And who's going to be speaking? Jesus is going to teach us. <laughs> I'll be taking a seat, right? It'll be, oh, it'll be oh, so wonderful. His ultimate supremacy, that's just a picture of it. His absolute righteousness, we've talked about that a lot, chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, are an example of that, especially chapter 6 and verse 5. It says, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord and his immeasurable mercy, which I should have made a capital I to make that right. Boy, my slides were just shabby today. Sorry about that. His ultimate supremacy, his absolute righteousness, and his immeasurable mercy. Those are just three things about him that are like, do you know anybody else like that? You know anybody else like that? You know anybody else who's ultimate in his supremacy? When the end comes, he's going to be in charge of all of it. Anybody else you know like that? Any other God ever make a claim like that? Who is like our Lord? Who is like Yahweh? Nobody. Anybody else who's absolute in his holiness, absolute in his justice, absolute in his righteousness? Mm -mm. You get irked about how unfair stuff is, how unjust things are, how the little guy gets kicked all the time. You know, you ever... You ever frustrate you? Will there become a time when he's going to take care of that? 
And there will be this absolute righteousness. And there will be this immeasurable, immeasurable mercy. What does he expect of us? What should this elicit in us? What does this should make us want to do? Micah 6.8 says it. He's shown you, O oh man, what's good and what he requires, what the Lord requires of you. Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Do just, justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. So we take sin seriously. We recognize justice is an inseparable part of God's nature. We recognize mercy is an inseparable part of God's nature. And we realize that God works his sovereign purpose together and nothing will hinder it. So if you think about it, justice, we understand God's justice. We understand there's no sin so small that will escape his notice. And we understand mercy. There's no sin so great that will exhaust his mercy. No sin so small that he's going to overlook it. But no sin so great that he cannot forgive it. Amen? Yeah, you say, I've heard this before. Yes, and you should hear it over and over again. And there are people here who haven't, there are people out there who really don't, they, don't, they haven't heard this. They don't get it. And they're nice people. They're sweet people. They're treasures of God that are out there that just, they do not know this. And they're not just going to sit still for you to tell them. You're going to have to love your way into their life. I'm almost done here. There's still so many people. Yesterday was beautiful, wasn't it? Today, beautiful day. Yesterday, wasn't it just beautiful? I mean, we're, we're Michiganders. You don't get February days like that very often, right? The entire, for the rest of February, it's supposed to be in the 40s. Is that good? Yeah. I'm like, thank you. I'm, I'm loving a global warming, you know, so far. And, um, but that, that's nice. So we're, I'm out and about yesterday talking to people. And, you know, I'm, I, I hey, Chuck, you and I, remember we, we didn't, couldn't find anybody who was having a good day. Remember that? We're like, hey, how you doing? I'm like, we're a couple of happy guys, you know? And we're like coming in, hey, how are you doing? They're like, oh, it's been a bad day. And I was like, oh, sorry about that. Some of them were downright snippy, weren't they? It was like, what in the world? We could not find a person in the entire downriver that we ran into yesterday that was having a good day. <laughs> People need Jesus around here. They really do. They need to have something more than whatever it is that it's disappointed them. Maybe I just having a bad day. Toward the end, I decided to get a little something. Bump into a lady. I don't want to say too much. She's going to come here someday. Bump into a lady that we kind of trade with all the time. And she's a sweet lady and works very, very hard. Very, very hard. She's a widow. And she loves Yorkies. So we like her. And she gives us tips on Yorkies, doesn't she? And so that we take good care of our Yorkie. She knows exactly how long our Yorkie's going to live. She's got that all figured out. And I was talking to her yesterday. And she's just such a sweet lady. And I said to her, uh, I'd sure love for you to come visit our church someday hear one of my talks. And she said, I- I'd like to do that. She goes, me and, me and the one up there, she says, with, with a kind of a reverence, you could tell the way she said it, the one up, up there, we have a deal. And I thought, well, we're on holy ground here, so I wanted to be careful. I said, yeah. She said, we have a deal. She said, I was raised Catholic, but I don't go to church at all. I'm really busy, and I work a lot. But we have a deal. Me and the one up there have a deal. I go, well, do you mind me asking what it is? She said, if I'm sincere, and if I am good to my fellow man, I'm going to be okay. 
So I talked with her for a while, and then I said, kind of circling back real gently, I said, well, before I go, let me, let me ask you again what you're telling me. So you're, you're just saying, basically, if you're, you're a good person, and if you're good to people, you'll go to heaven when you die. Is that what you're saying? She said, yes, that's right. Here's this precious lady who's ignorant. I don't mean to be unkind, but she's ignorant of the justice of God, the demands of God's justice. Because if she ever understood the demands of God's justice, she would never suggest that she was good enough to fulfill them. And she's ignorant of the mercy of God because she's ignorant of the justice of God. This lady, if I can, if Lois and I, our family, if we can love our way into her life so that she will listen from her heart and could understand this great God of absolute justice and holiness and immeasurable mercy could have a home in Zion for the rest of her life. Wouldn't that be something? That's what he wants his people to experience, and that's what he wants his people to make known. And I love you, and and I'm grateful for you being so patient with my nice long little talk here tonight. Pastor, come and conclude our service with a song, would you?